I'm told there are speakers who need no introduction. Our commencement speaker, selected by you, the class of 2005, Tom Campbell, may be such a person. Certainly he presents some challenges to me, and I haven't gotten past the first one. To begin with, how do I refer to him? Is he Dr. Campbell? He holds bachelor's, master's, and PhD degrees in economics from the University of Chicago, in addition to his law degree from Harvard. Is he Professor Campbell? He was professor of law at Stanford University for 19 years and is still professor of business at Berkeley. Perhaps it is Congressman Campbell. He represented the Silicon Valley area in Congress from 1989 to 1993 and from 1995 to 2001. Or Senator Campbell. He represented the 11th Senate District in the California State Senate from 1993 to 1995. In that short time, he was named most ethical state senator, best overall senator, and best problem solver. There's a two-year program for you. How about Dean Campbell, favorite of mine? Uh, just before assuming his current position, he served as dean of the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley from 2002 until his current appointment, and he remains in that position, although on leave. Currently, he is Director Campbell, appointed by Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger on November 4, 2004, as Director of the California Department of Finance, where he serves as the Governor's Chief Fiscal Advisor and oversees the development and implementation of California's state budget. I think I've seen something in the news about that. He is also author Campbell with over 18 major publications in leading law reviews and journals of economics, not to mention his influential book, Separation of Powers in Practice, published just last year. And he has practiced law, been a law clerk at the United States Court of Appeals and to the United States Supreme Court, a White House fellow, holder of important positions at the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission, and husband. It is therefore my great pleasure to introduce to you an outstanding servant of the people of California, Dr. Professor, Congressman, Senator, Dean, and Director of the California Department of Finance, Tom Campbell. Boy, that was as nice an introduction as I've ever had. Thank you, Dean. And I want you to know, coming after Bruce Chang, Professor Dobris, Greg Gabriel, and Joe Adams, uh, it's like Rodney Dangerfield, Alan Alda, Woody Allen, a little Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In terms of sincerity, warmth, and wisdom, you've heard the best. So I thought I'd direct my remarks to recent developments in the field of ancillary jurisdiction as it applies to cross-claims in interpleader actions. <laughs> now, I know you're up on that, so I'm just going to limit my remarks to the recent developments. <laughs> Actually, one of my colleagues on the stage today, Professor Alan Brownstein and I, were colleagues together in law school, and Alan might actually remember that that was the name of an article in the law review where we both had the privilege to be working. And it was the first law review article that I ever edited. And like that, as well as the articles I've written, it passed universally into profound obscurity. <laughs> uh, today you might call that direct-to-video uh, 
for the particular article. So I decided a different topic. Uh, criminal law, criminal law. What could I bring to the subject? Well, I'm a former law professor and a former politician, so naturally I did some research on famous politicians' quotations on the matter of criminal law, and I turned up the following quote. I haven't committed a crime. What I did was fail to comply with the law. <laughs> End quote, Mayor Dinkins of New York. Quote, the police are not there to cause disorder. They're there to preserve disorder. <laughs> Mayor Richard Daly, Chicago. Quote, the streets are safe in Philadelphia. It's only the people who make them less safe. <laughs> Mayor Rizzo, Philadelphia. My own favorite. Outside of the killings, Washington is one of the lowest crime rates in the country. <laughs> Marion Barry, mayor of Washington, D.C. My own experience in criminal law is somewhat limited. I represented the grand total of two criminal defendants in the course of my career. Unfortunately, justice was done in each occasion. <laughs> A commencement is, address is to be inspirational, so with that 0 for 2 record, uh, I'm not going to seek inspiration in criminal law, but I do suggest if you commit a crime, seek another defense attorney. <laughs> the opportunity to engage um, in trial practice might have given me something, so I thought I'd share with you uh, the most imaginative freelancing I've ever seen when my client... Uh, answered his own attorney's question in a manner that one can only call surprising. The client was accused of selling shares in a company that produced powdered gasoline. <laughs> Add water and you could run a car. Now, to that remarkable premise, let me add that my client was accused of selling over 1,200% of the available shares in this company. And uh, we anticipated that the United States attorney might ask, uh, why did you sell more than 1,200% of the company? And w without having ever unethically coached a client, you might just have anticipated he could have said, well, because I was put upon by greedy investors. Uh, I didn't read the documents. They shoved them in front of me. Some such answer that would engage the jury in the well well-worn route of blaming the victim of the crime, hoping to let the defendant off. Instead, the defense team was left somewhat surprised when the reply came in, why does my name appear on sales documents selling stock in more than 100, more than 1,200% uh, of the company? Hmm. Masked gunmen broke into my home at night and forced me to sign blank pieces of paper. Reflect on the genius of this answer. It can serve in virtually any criminal case. <laughs> Call it the universal defense, the type O blood of criminal justice. Masked gunmen forced me to sign the Enron balance sheet. Masked gunmen purchased the $100,000 shower curtain with company funds. Well, I can't in good conscience make that piece of advice my recommendation to you this morning. However, if it comes in handy at any time, feel free to use this universal defense. There is another lesson in this episode. It, it, don't overly pursue an answer with a follow-up question, right? This is the kind of error whose commission you'll soon learn of in your bar review courses, but it's best exemplified in the following real-life instance of cross-examination that was just a bit 
too tenacious. So this is from a wonderful book called Disorderly Conduct by Charles Sevilla. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? <laughs> Response, no. Hmm. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. Well, no. How can you be so sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting on my desk in a jar. <laughs> it gets better. But could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? Yes, it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> I couldn't have made that one up. My next inspiration came from the line of specialty I eventually followed, which was antitrust. Just before being elected to Congress the first time, I published an article entitled Spatial Predation in Antitrust, the Case of Non-Fungible Goods. Readership of this article ran into the high teens. <laughs> I couldn't have been elected without that readership. I do wish to relay how the practice of antitrust law served me once I got to the United States Congress. A bill had passed the Judiciary Committee and was headed to the House floor dealing with the arcane subject of the rules that restrict a manufacturer from setting a price to be charged by a distributor. I offered an amendment. Now, when you watch C-SPAN and you watch the House of Representatives, uh, you're no doubt struck by the fact that debates take place with virtually nobody there. Uh, as a result, when an amendment is offered, members of Congress stream in from their offices, which are across Constitution Avenue. And their first question as they enter the door is, well, what's this vote about? They weren't watching the debate. So I stood at the door used by most members as they came onto the floor to vote, and I said, the underlying bill allows a distributor to survive a motion to dismiss upon proof of a complaint from other distributors to a manufacturer that the plaintiff distributor had charged too low a price. My amendment creates an affirmative defense of absence of market power on the part of the manufacturer when the distributor alleges the manufacturer has engaged in resale price maintenance. My amendment failed. <laughs> Gratefully, the bill died in the U.S. Senate. Next year, the same bill was on the House floor. I offered the same exact amendment, but I had done one thing else. I had gone to the National Federation of Independent Businesses, the Small Business Lobby Group, and I got their endorsement. This time, as members streamed in through the doors and I was asked, what does this amendment do? I looked at them and said, small business wants a yes. <laughs> I won. Critical lesson learned, don't speak of resale price maintenance on the floor of the House of Representatives or at graduation ceremonies. So having struck out with these proposed topics of civil procedure, trial practice, resale price maintenance, let me now move to a bit more serious. There is something I want to talk to you about, and it stems from the fact that upon passing the bar, which will uh, be your glory in the very near future, you'll be obliged to take an oath. And that oath is that you swear or affirm that you will uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States and of the state of California 
or whatever state you will be practicing in. The obligation to take an oath to make a solemn affirmance is what I want to talk to you about in a serious vein just for a moment. I think this obligation has depth, and I believe the depth has largely been lost in the modern world. I won't have the honor to speak at the ceremony when you become members of the bar, so let me anticipate that a little bit while I do have your attention at your graduation and refer to the United States Constitution, Article 6, Clause 3. The provision of this, this provision of the Constitution has literal application to you. It doesn't to anybody else graduating at UC Davis this entire graduation uh, uh, period. It's the only provision of the United States Constitution that places a requirement upon an entire profession, even upon those in our profession who do not draw a dime of their salary from government. The provision says the senators and representatives before mentioned and the members of the several state legislatures and all executive, and here's your part, and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution, end quote. You will soon all be judicial officers. To practice law, you will have to take this oath to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States. Why? Why? Why is it so important that every new attorney take an oath to support the Constitution? It's so important that we find this requirement written into the Constitution itself. Logically, there's several different possible explanations. First, the oath is a mere trapping of office. It's administered. Life goes on unchanged. It's part of the celebration activities of becoming an attorney. Second, read the clause as requiring an affirmation of the sovereignty of the United States, that at least you're not supposed to lead a rebellion against the government. Third, require the person swearing to observe the forms of the United States. So a United States senator shouldn't send out an appointment that somebody's become an ambassador. And as an attorney, you shouldn't try to act as a judge without actually being appointed as a judge. Much more interesting, fourth, the oath could be read to require that the taker of the oath not knowingly pass any law that a legislator believes to be unconstitutional, or the attorney not advance an argument that she or he believes to be unconstitutional. This interpretation takes the person as we find the person. It does not impose a duty to inform oneself. Just what you know is what must guide your conscience. Lastly, you can read the oath requirement as an obligation to take an advanced course in constitutional law and stay current. First interpretation, that it's just a rite of passage. That's really inconsistent with the fact that the requirement applies to attorneys admitted to practice in state courts. No business of the federal government why we would have to have a ceremony regarding state courts. Second, that you not rebel against the country, well, that leaves very little for the oath requirement, too. There are already laws against treason and provisions for impeachment, whether the offender has taken an oath or not. And that requirement of an oath for the sole purpose of clarifying to what country you owe allegiance makes maybe some sense for new citizens, and we do indeed require new citizens to take an oath, but it's totally unnecessary, it seems to me, as a requirement for all persons who become attorneys. Uh, the danger that a secret Tory would sneak into the government and turn our sovereignty back to England is somewhat remote, as, as recent developments in the royal family make clear. 
the third interpretation largely renders the clause empty, namely just follow the prescribed forms of government. Because right after it, you've got the Federal Supremacy Clause right there in Article 6, explicitly binding the judges of state courts. So why go further and require the officers of the courts to take an oath? The proximity of the Supremacy Clause to the Oath Clause suggests that the Oath Clause meant, meant something more. In the last two interpretations, I think we move into the much more interesting and much more important part of what I have to share with you this morning. In these areas, we require a burden upon members of Congress, state legislatures, and attorneys. If a legislator believes a bill to be unconstitutional, it would forbid that legislator from doing the easy thing, which is to say, oh, let's just let the courts decide. If an attorney believes an argument helpful to his or her client, but is nevertheless unconstitutional, you would be obliged not to use it. I want to give you an actual instance from my own career. Uh, an appropriations bill came on the House floor for the National Endowment for the Arts. The National Endowment for the Arts had been putting money into some controversial arts projects, a number of which had been controversial because they denigrated religion. A colleague of mine from an Orange County district, who will otherwise remain namely, nameless, uh, multi-syllable named congressman from an Orange County district <laughs> offered the following amendment that no funds shall be appropriated for any art which denigrates a major religion, end quote. I went up to him on the House floor and I said, Dana, <laughs> Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. It doesn't say Congress shall not establish religion. It says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. What are you doing? His answer is, well, let the courts decide that. I don't think that's satisfactory for a legislator. I don't think it would be satisfactory for you. The irony of this view is that legislators better informed about the Constitution are at a distinct political disadvantage. I ran the next year in a United States Senate primary in the Republican Party, of which I'm a member, and uh, I lost, and my opponent used against me the fact that I would not terminate federal money to subsidize art that denigrated a major religion. The finer points of First Amendment jurisprudence were not the most salient aspects of that particular primary campaign, nor, truthfully, did I think that particular aspect made the difference. Nevertheless, he did raise it against me. So the odd thing is that a legislator or an attorney who invests time to consider the constitutionality of his or her act would be constrained in a manner that others wouldn't from doing what might be helpful to a client or politically popular. There might even be an incentive to remain ignorant, better thereby not to learn the Constitution, salving one's conscience with the thought that the courts will eventually be the arbiters. No harm be done. Short-term goal be served. I'm telling you that's not acceptable. It's not acceptable for a congressperson, and not acceptable for a legislator, not acceptable for an attorney, and all of us are bound by this oath. It is inconceivable that we would reward a member of a learned profession by, in fact, not being learned. Therefore, at least for the attorney, the oath requirement must carry an obligation to study the Constitution on a regular basis at least to a level adequate to the constitutional issues that might be presented in the case that the attorney is trying. The oath then binds you, so informed, not to urge a violation of the Constitution as you understand it to be. 
and it won't do to remain intentionally ignorant. This is where the constitutional oath requirement has its real force, although it's subtle. Every attorney is urged, every attorney who practices law in any state or federal court, to take an oath to uphold the Constitution and thereby be required to apply your own screen of constitutionality to any act you undertake. No other graduate at UC Davis today will have to undertake that obligation. It has the goal of maximally protecting the Constitution from infringement. If you rely solely on the Supreme Court, you run the risk that the Supreme Court might let a constitutional violation percolate. Don't you hate that word in this context? Percolate among the circuits or the states for many years just by denying certiorari. And during those years of percolation, constitutional rights would have been violated with no redress. The Supreme Court waited 13 years after striking down separate but equal to strike down anti-miscegenation laws. And relying on the Supreme Court alone might lead to long delays in vindication, and occasionally the Supreme Court even gets it wrong. As of 1998, the last time I did this research, the United States Supreme Court had explicitly reversed itself by its own admission 216 times. More than once a year, on average, the United States Supreme Court publicly has said, we got it wrong. Imagine how many other times they got it wrong and they didn't publicly say so. Are we so confident of judges as guardians that we do not need attorneys to be guardians too? The true reason for the oath requirement thus is to call forth this action, not just from nine justices, but from hundreds of thousands of attorneys in private practice, requiring each in her or his own action to support the Constitution. And the fact that this duty cannot practically be enforced by any kind of police is actually the key to understand its design and its importance. The obligation works at the level of conscience. The founders knew there was no way to disbar an attorney for what anybody else might have thought was an oversight, or for that matter, to throw a legislator out of Congress for not having thoroughly researched the Commerce Clause. Rather, the oath requirement had force at the precise level that could not otherwise be reached, conscience, the most effective level of all. If there is no outside enforcement possible, that should argue for the solemnity of the oath that you are to take, not for its trivialization. The requirement should remain strong even among those with no faith in God. It is an appeal to a virtue that we prize called integrity, found among believers and non-believers alike. Integrity, whose essentiality to the profession of law and to our country is shown by its being included in the Constitution. So I hope I've given you something to think about when you take your oath of office a few months from now. You individually, personally, will take an oath to be a protector of our Constitution, nothing less. Never forget it. Never forget it when your client's shortcut might work before a judge who lacks your intellectual ability. Occasionally you'll encounter one. Never forget it when you are an elected official and a politically popular position requires only a little shaving of a constitutional rule. 
You know, I've never met an evil man or woman, but I have often met men and women who, in the daily context of seeking advantage, often for a cause that might sound worthy, make just a small compromise. An untrue campaign statement might help me get elected, and imagine all the good I can do then. Ignoring my oath won't matter in this one occasion because there's something more important at stake. These are the contexts in which loss of soul occurs. And whether you believe in God or not, it was to prevent such a loss of soul that our nation's founders ordered that you, every one of you, bind yourself by the highest form of obligation you can respect that you, at least, will not help deny any person of the equal protection of the laws, that you will not abide an abridgment of the freedom of speech or of the press, that you will have no part in violating our right to be secure in our persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures and that you will resist professionally with all the formidable legal talents you possess anyone else's attempt to do so. That, more than any famous client or rare opportunity to serve in elected office, will distinguish you as an attorney, as an officer of the court. By the very design of the United States Constitution, members of our profession, each of us, has a duty our country expects this of you. You don't have to practice law, though after three years and thousands of dollars, corrupted eating habits and other things I've heard about today, the state's own investment in you not being small, it would be a shame if you didn't actually practice law. But if you wish to practice law, this comes with it. You'll also be taking up the role of protecting the generative document and inspiring force of our country, the United States Constitution. The United States Constitution is the most comprehensive working prescription for freedom within organized society that the world has ever seen. It has survived 218 years and overcome challenges ranging from civil war to world war to cold war to the war on terrorism, each with its own seductive invitation to compromise what is fundamental. This day, this Constitution is entrusted into your hands. Thank you and congratulations.